reading is from Revelation 21. Nothing like starting with new beginnings with the last passages of Scripture. I like that. A little irony there. Revelation 21, 1 to 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is TJ Turner. I'm an intern here at Christ Central. Um, <clears throat> it's kind of funny. Every time I preach, which hasn't been very many times, but uh, I start out and I look at the passage and I think, gosh, what am I going to talk about for, you know, an hour? I mean, 30 minutes. Um, <clears throat> and I always think, gosh, I'm never going to find enough to talk about. And then by the time Sunday rolls around, I realize there's so much to talk about that I could never really fit it into that time. I realized that about five minutes ago. So I hope you guys are comfortable. Oh, I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, uh, it, it's the new year. I, I don't feel like I really need to preach now. Howard and, and Giorgio and Terrence said about everything I want to say, but uh, I'm going to reemphasize it so you remember it better. Um, but it is the new year. I hope you all had a lot of fun on New Year's Eve. I hope you're all recovered by now from all that fun. Um, so Howard asked me about a week and a half ago about preaching today. And he mentioned one thing I could possibly talk about being um, resolutions because it's the new year and people make resolutions. And I don't know, I'd completely forgotten about that. Um, I don't know. But, yeah, it, it is the new year, and this is the time of year where we make um, all kinds of resolutions uh, about things we want to see change the next year. You know, some of the most common ones are uh, we make a resolution to start a diet. I know I've done that before. Uh, we make a resolution to exercise more. We go join the gym. I've done that, too. Uh, maybe you make a resolution to stop smoking, to get a better job, finish some projects. Um, you know, in general, we, we resolve to, to do things that are going to make us better people um, and to do better things, right? That's, that's what we do every new year. <clears throat> but depending on your circumstances, uh, your resolution could be a little more serious. Uh, maybe looking back on the past year, you've resolved that you're not going to take another year of neglect and abuse, uh, maybe you've resolved that this year you're going to get the recognition that you deserve from your coworkers or the appreciation you deserve from your family. Maybe you've resolved that you're not going to spend another year alone. Really, it makes a lot of sense to do this this time of year. Um, this is the time of year where we kind of renew our hope in life. We look back on the, the last year. It's in the past now. And we look forward to this year and, and hope that things could be better. I mean, you know, why else would we make res- resolutions now 
unless we had some hope that things are going to be better. By the way, if I stutter, it's because it's freezing up here. So, <clears throat> If you're wondering where the coldest spot in the church is, it's right over there. I want you all to know that. Anyway, so we look forward to the new year with hope, right? We renew our hope. We make resolutions. We think this year is going to be better. This year is going to be different. Um, and I just want to say wherever you are, wherever you start out now looking forward, um, I just want to say to you that you're probably going to fail. Thought you might laugh at that. Sorry. Um, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but there's a pretty good chance your diet's going to last about three weeks. Um, and your gym membership is going to be worth one month, even though you pay for 12. Um, but come on, y'all. We, we all know our diet's not going to last. We can laugh at that at least a little bit, right? But, you know, there's, there's also a very real chance that you're not going to get a better job this year either. You might look back next Christmas and, and feel just as unappreciated this year as you did last. You might be just alone, just as alone then as you are now. Your relationships might not get better this year. They might get worse. Sorry, I know I'm, I'm supposed to save the depressing part until later, not at the beginning. Um, but the truth is there's a really good chance that all the things we're hoping for this year are going to fail. 2010 might be the worst year of your life. I hope it's not. I, I hate to say that. It, it really wasn't my plan to come up here and be as depressing as I can. Um, <clears throat> but as I, I tried to get ready to talk about this passage and think about what I could say to you, I, I realized that we really need a huge reality check. If we're going to understand how important this passage is, we have to start out by understanding how great our need really is. If we're going to value new creation the way that we should, we have to realize how broken creation is now. You know, because we walk around in life with all kinds of hopes and dreams and longings. Some of them we share with others. Some of them are so personal that we keep them to ourselves. But the reality is a lot of those things are never going to be fulfilled in this life. I mean, some of our hopes take a lot of audacity, right? Because Not because they're so bold and so amazing, but because they're false hopes, because they're empty hopes. They're hopes in things that never can satisfy us, that even if they came true, we'd still be just as empty. We have a lot of hopes like that, and those hopes are going to let us down. What we need is a lasting hope, a hope that we can trust in, something that doesn't fade and won't disappoint us. But I think before we can find that hope, we have to realize a couple things, because the reality is the world we live in is so broken that it can't be fixed. And you and I, we're, we're so broken that we can't be fixed. I, again, I hate to... <clears throat> be really negative, but I think if we're going to grasp uh, the importance of this passage, we've, we've got to let go of our false hopes. I, I looked up on Wikipedia, by the way, hope, um, and, and Wikipedia says that hope is belief in a positive outcome. It's kind of just a generic, I think things will be better. Um, and I think that we have a lot of those kinds of hopes. 
we look back on our lives at, at things that we're unhappy with, things that hurt us, and we just kind of hope it'll be better. I, I don't think that's good enough in our world. I don't think that is a hope that can sustain us. We need a lot more than that. We need something reliable to hope in. This, as we're going to see, this is, <clears throat> excuse me, this is exactly what God has for us. A real, unshakable, indestructible hope. But for us to understand it, we've got to realize a few things. We have to realize that our world is broken beyond repair and cannot be fixed. That we are broken beyond repair. That we can't be fixed. But that God is making us new. Okay, first, we have to realize that our world is broken. It can't be fixed. Okay, you can call me Captain Obvious. You've probably noticed, but the world we live in has some issues. Little things, you know, could use a little work, a little tweaking here and there. Um, little things like war, famine, poverty, hunger, death. Those things serve to remind us on a regular basis that our world is broken. But as much as we're aware of these things, I really don't think we realize how bad our world is. I don't think we grasp how broken it is. The Bible tells us that the world is in bondage to corruption, that it's a slave to sin and to death. See, I think we a lot of times look at the problems in the world and think, here's something that needs to be overcome. Here's something we need to work on. We need to fix that. We we walk around, at least I I know I do, holding on to this myth of human progress. We just think that over time things are going to get better. We think that things like, Racism and, and genocide and poverty, you know, those over time, those will just go away. And we look back on horrors like the Holocaust in the past and we say, those things will never happen again. We're, we're too sophisticated now. The world has evolved. That's a lie. That's a fundamentally wrong way to look at the world. Things aren't just getting better. The world isn't just progressing. It's in bondage to sin. The world itself, the universe itself, is broken. It's passing away. It's a slave to the corruption brought about by the fall. And ultimately, our world will suffer the consequences of sin, the consequences of the fall. Now, what you may ask are the consequences of sin. It's death. In the the beginning, at the fall, God said to Adam, if you disobey me, you will die. Adam disobeyed, humanity rejected the source of life, and the universe is dying. And I might say it's, it's dying a rather slow and painful death. And what's more is we don't have a cure. Nothing we do can stop this. The world is a slave to sin, and until it is set free, everything we do to try to fix it is going to fail What I'm trying to get you to understand is that every human attempt to redeem our world is doomed to fail. Um, Yeah, depressing today, sorry. Um, Because you see, if, if all of creation is in bondage to sin, then that means that every aspect of our society, government, private enterprise, charities, they're all broken too. They're corrupted by sin too. They don't have the power to bring about redemption. 
there's really only two possible outcomes to any human attempt to redeem society. One is that that in spite of all of their, in spite of the intention to make things better, it will ultimately bring about greater division. I think presidential elections in our country are a great example. We have candidates who are trying to unite the whole country behind them, trying to make it a better place, trying to get everyone to agree on one person and one view of the world because they think it'll make it better. And all that does is, is it drives people further apart. It creates greater disunity year after year. The other possibility is that people will unite, people will come together, and they'll come together to rebel against God. There's a great example in the Old Testament in uh, Genesis chapter 11. There's the story of a group of people who unite together with a great purpose in mind. They're, they're going to build a city and stay together, and they're going to build a monument to their greatness. Uh, it's called the Tower of Babel, usually. What, what happens is God has told humanity to go out into the world, to spread and to fill the world with people. And this group of people, what they decide to do with their unity is to defy God and say, we're not going to go out into the world. We're not going to fill it. We're not going to do what God wants. We're going to stay here together and build a city. And we're going to build a monument to our own greatness. We're going to build a tower, not to try to reach the heavens because we want to get to God, but to show God that we don't need him. We're okay on our own. This is how our world works. Unity, which sounds like a good thing when it's unity among people, unity in our world, unity for human purposes, can only be used for evil. It may not, you know, not necessarily the worst possible evil that you can imagine, but it's only going to be used in defiance of God. It's some other way to save us apart from God. That's how broken our world is. It's beyond repair. It can't be fixed. We can't super glue it back together. I mean, I, th- I think that's how we think about our world a lot of the time. It's like a vase that got knocked over, and we want God to come along with like some cosmic divine super glue and put the pieces back together. But that, that's not good enough. I, I think that the world we live in is a lot more like a big divine pot of soup. Okay, so... At the beginning of time, God created a giant pot of soup. It was really, really delicious soup, really awesome soup. Um, best soup ever. Uh, and then we came along and we, we dumped a big vial of poison in it. And, and it saturated every part of it. So, I mean, we can't take the poison out. Every drop of the soup we drink kills us, even if it tastes good. It might look delicious, but it's deadly. That's how our world is. Because of sin, it's working against us. We, we see this really clearly in the, the pronouncement of judgment God gives at the fall. Uh, Adam had been given the mission to go out and subdue the world and to bring it kind of into the garden. They started out in a beautiful garden, but the whole world was in a beautiful garden. And he was told to go out to fill the garden, or to fill the world, to subdue the garden, to tend and keep it. Um, that's the, that was the purpose he was given. As a result of the fall, God says that now it's through pain and through heavy labor and through the sweat of his brow that he'll eat. You know, there's not abundant food just hanging around for Adam and for us anymore. The world is broken. God says that thorns and thistles will come forth. He's, he's saying that the purpose we were given is now being opposed by the very world we live in. Um, now, 
I, I want to make sure you don't understand me. Don't misunderstand me. Sorry, I do want you to understand me. Um, I don't want you to misunderstand me. It, it, could sound, it might sound like I'm saying that a lot of the good things we do to try to make the world a better place are just a waste of time. That's, that's not what I'm saying. Please don't think that. But I am talking about where our ultimate hope is placed. If our ultimate hope is in the government or in business or in our ability to make our lives better or in the goodness of humanity to improve, then it will fail and we will be let down. Our God, God in this passage says that the old world passed away. I mean, it doesn't mean it just moved on. It died. He uses the language of death. He does it for a reason. This world is dying. It will pass away. But we can have real hope in it. If we realize that God is doing something so much better than just fixing it. He's making it new. But it's not just that our world is broken. It's that we are broken. And we are in bondage to corruption and sin. We are broken beyond repair. I mean, again, I, I know you know that we all have problems, but I don't know if you realize how broken we are. I mean, I think we're so used to our own failings that we just lose sight of, of how different we are now from what we were created to be. First of all, we're all going to die. That's, that's not normal. I mean, that, that is normal. It's so normal that we don't even think twice about it. It's such a part of our reality. It just seems like the norm. Sure, we're going to die. We don't want to die. We try to do everything we can not to die. But we know eventually we will. But this is all wrong. This isn't what we were created for. Death, it's the result of the fall. It's a consequence of our sin. You may not know this. The first death of any kind recorded in the Bible happens at the fall when God has to make clothes for Adam and Eve, and he does so by killing an animal. And then the first human death of any kind happens shortly thereafter when the child of Adam and Eve is murdered by his own brother. I just want you to realize the Bible doesn't present death as a normal part of life. It's not something we should expect. The Bible shows us that death is not what was intended Death is a violation of what God created the world for. It's a consequence that happened because we rejected the source of life. We said to God, we don't need you. We're good enough on our own. And we were very wrong. And now we all know that we'll die. And this should be a reminder to us that we're fundamentally broken. I mean, I think we, we're so used to comforting ourselves in a lot of ways that some of them good, yeah, absolutely, and I'll come back to that later. But we, I think we dumb down our own emotions and our own brokenness and our own hurt. And when a death happens, we, we miss the message that we ought to see. We ought to realize the world is broken, that we are broken, and that we're in need of complete restoration. That's the message we should get. And it's not just that we're physically broken. We, like the world, are in bondage to sin. And we are separated as a result from God. Uh, everything we do, the Bible says, is tainted by evil. 
In the Psalms, God says he looked out to see if there's anyone who is righteous, anyone who seeks him, anyone who does what is right. And there was nobody. Nobody. And this drives a, sep- a wedge between us and God. It separates us from God. And it leaves us like Adam after the fall. What did he do? He hid. He hid from God, hiding in the bushes. Or it leaves us like the people at Babel, trying to build a monument to show that we're okay, that we, you know, we don't need God that much. We're fine. That's where our sin leaves us. That's how broken we are. Our only two options, really, are to hide from God or to act like we don't need God. That's the options our nature gives us. I mean, I don't, and I don't think I need to convince you guys how bad humans can be. I mean, you know the things we do to each other in the world. And I don't even mean, again, the, the worst kind of things we can imagine. All of those happen. We know about all those. But even if you look at the way that we neglect those that we're responsible to care for, the ways we put ourselves first, the ways we choose uh, to care for us at the expense of others or lash out at others uh, to, to, to soothe our own hurt. These are all symptoms of our ultimate brokenness. And, and they're all proof to us that we can't fix ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. And I want you to let that reality sink in. There's, there's no amount of self-help books or seminars you can go to that are going to make you whole. You, you can't be glued back together. You're too broken. You need to be made new. If we're, in, if we're to have any hope in this world, we've talked a lot about hope today, it's got to come from somewhere other, other than in ourselves and somewhere other than in the world. But I'm here to tell you today there is hope because God is making us new. This is a little weird, okay? Our passage says that the new world comes when the old one dies. This is a common idea throughout the Bible, that death actually leads to life, that life springs out of death, or at least the appearance of death. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, then unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The idea is that a seed has to, to fall off of the tree or off the stalk. It has to be separated from the thing that gives it life and fall to the ground, which seems like it's death. And when that happens, new life can begin. Life springs forth from a place where death alone seemed inevitable. Now this happens again and again through the Bible. Um, one of the first places we see it is with, with Abel. I mentioned earlier, Adam and Eve's son is murdered. Um, it seems like there is no hope for the future of humanity. There are no more children. The only child left is murder. But then a new, new child comes, and faith it continues. Later on, Abraham and Sarah, God says to them, you're going to give birth to a whole nation, that your offspring will number um, like the stars in the sky. But they're old, they're probably a hundred years old. And they're barren. They have no children. Death seems inevitable for them. But then a, a child comes and hope is renewed and life spring forth, springs forth out of death. See it again with Moses. Moses is born in a time where all the male children in, of, of the Israelites are being murdered. His parents hide him for as long as possible, but eventually they have to put him in a basket, put him out in the Nile River, hoping that someone will find him and not kill him like they should legally according to the laws of the Pharaoh. 
death seems inevitable. And yet, instead, he is saved. And through him, the entire nation of Israel is set free from their bondage. Again and again through the Bible, death, apparent death, hopelessness gives, breaks forth to life, to new hope. I think if we look at the world we live in, it's fair to say that, that death seems inevitable. Life, objectively speaking, seems kind of hopeless. But it's just at that moment of apparent hopelessness, of greatest darkness, when the world passes away, when this world will end, it will die. That seems like a horrible thing. But when it does, that's when God is going to reveal the greatest restoration of life in all of history. The world passes away, and out of it breaks forth life of new creation. And it's not just more of the same. This, this new creation is radically different than the old. It's not just the, the old creation super glued together with a new bumper, you know, and, and buffed with some waxes. It's a whole, it's the old world made into everything it was ever meant to be. There's no more war, no more conflict, no more poverty, no more hunger. No more will the world itself oppose us, oppose the purpose God has given us, and no more will it oppose the will of God. There will be no more fight against us from the world. Pain and death themselves will be no more. And in their place, what will we see? Righteousness. The glory of God will dwell. There will be no more bondage to sin and decay. The world will be set free. And everything that is weak and perishable and passing away and broken will be made new and indestructible and eternal. And the whole world will be united together, rejoicing in the presence of God and His Lamb. No more division. No more hate. Righteousness. Joy. Rejoicing. That's something to hope in. Now, it's actually better than that. Okay, in the middle of all this, really glorious stuff, the new heavens, the new earth, new Jerusalem, John, who's writing Revelation, he's the one seeing his vision, says something really weird. He says there's no more sea. Like, okay, who cares about the geography of the new world? I mean, should be more concerned about new life and no more death. Like, why even put that in there? It doesn't seem to make any sense. But the reason he includes that is because the idea of the sea, it's, it's symbolic, like a lot of the book of Revelation is. A few chapters earlier, John is describing a vision of the source of all opposition to God, the kind of incarnation of sin. He describes it as a, as a beast coming up out of the sea. The same kind of language is used in the book of Daniel when, it, again, it, it describes the, the forces that oppose God as a beast that comes up out of the sea. Okay, so what's that mean? Um, there's a point to it, I promise. Uh, what it means, at least most scholars agree, that here sin rep- or the, the sea represents the source of opposition to God, the source of sin, the source of destruction. So what he's saying is it's not just that the new heaven and the new earth are the old earth being fixed. They're not just made new. We're not just put in a better world. We're put in a world where the very source of sin and destruction and temptation, the very source of opposition to God's will is no more. Bondage to sin is gone forever. The world is set free 
to be what God created it to be. And there's even better news because God isn't just making the world new. He's making us new. He's not just making a world that's nice where we can live in it for peace. He is making us new creations, redeeming us from our deepest brokenness, making us into the people that we were always meant to be. And we too will be free from the bondage of sin and brokenness. Death itself will be overcome. And we one day will be raised up to a life that will be indestructible, unshakable, everlasting. Our sinful nature will be destroyed. Our own drive towards self-centeredness and autonomy will be overcome. I, I don't know, that sounds like really good news to me. I mean, don't you get tired of the struggle of being doomed to always to do the things that you don't want to do? and not to do what you want to do. Struggling against yourself, trying to do what's right, being pulled in all the wrong directions. That struggle will be over. We will be made free, truly free. And God, and this is really amazing, is going to reveal us to be who He always intended us to be. The, the people of God will be seen in the new creation in all of their glory. And I know this is easy to miss in this passage. I missed it, too, at first. John says that, he writes, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's, the New Jerusalem isn't the city we'll live in in heaven. The New Jerusalem is the church, not a building. The New Jerusalem represents us. It's the people of God made glorious, adorned as a bride for Christ, made perfect, revealed to be everything God has intended us to be all along, the pinnacle of creation. This is, this is what we will be, glorious and beautiful, a suitable bride for Christ who is perfection, who is divine, who is God himself. And this is what I want you to, to understand we're going to be so beautiful in the new creation because of the things that we've gone through now, because of the pain and brokenness in our lives now. I, I, I know that's kind of hard to grasp, but some of the consequences of sin are permanent. I mean, permanent, permanent forever. And that seems like a bad thing. But it's not. Because... Some of the things that seem the most broken and the most wrong and the most hurt in the world, God is making them beautiful. He is turning them into a source of glory, something that shows how powerful He is. Think back. Um, I mentioned earlier the Tower of Babel. The people united against God in defiance of Him, and God's response was what? He, he gave them language, multiple languages. He created disunity. He confused everybody by creating all these different languages. And that, that seems like a bad thing. Disunity seems like a bad thing. I would expect God to fix this in the new creation. I kind of would think we'll all be speaking heavenese or preferably English. I don't know. Something I know already. But that's not what happens. God doesn't fix that. He makes it a beautiful thing. Earlier in Revelation chapter 7, John sees a vision of the bride of Christ and all of her glory. And what does he see? He says, I looked. And behold, a great multitude 
that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm wrenches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Every language is there. God didn't fix that. Instead, He made it beautiful. He made it glorious. That's what the new creation is like. The things that are broken in us now, God makes them beautiful. He makes them whole. Now, I know that can be hard to believe, and I don't know um, where you are in your life. That might not seem like a lot of consolation. But the truth is that every moment in our lives now is shaping who God is making us in the new creation. The things that seem broken now are being made new and beautiful and glorious. And the moments of beauty now, when God enables us to do what's right, are foreshadowing what we will be in the new creation. Okay, I'm going to quote Kanye West. So if somebody wants to come grab a mic, Kanye me, Brad. I'm going to let you finish. Um, I know that's played out, sorry. Anyway, so... There's a song, it's kind of autobiographical. Kanye West is talking about his life, and there's a line in it where he says, I'm trying to right my wrongs, but it's funny, those same wrongs helped me write this song. There's some real truth in that. I know now that our wrongs are part of our story of brokenness. They're part of how we are hurt and how we hurt others. But in the new creation, our wrongs will be part of the story of our redemption. They'll be part of the story of how God has taken something as broken as us and made it whole and made it beautiful and made it good and brought glory to himself through us. You know, I, I was a little worried when I was writing this sermon because I, I started so depressing. Um, and, and I talked about how our best efforts to make the world better are going to fail. Um, and, and I was a little worried, honestly, that, that some of y'all might hear me and think that that there's no point in trying then. I mean, there are people, there are Christians who really believe this. They say that caring about things like social justice and, and poverty, that it's like polishing the doorknobs on the Titanic while the ship is going down. Um, but I hope none of you think that's what I'm saying. If you walk away thinking that, you're definitely missing the point of what I'm trying to tell you. Because you see, if you can believe that God is bringing about ultimate restoration in which all things will be made new and everything that has happened in our lives will matter, will have shaped that, will be part of the glory and beauty, then, really only then, can you go out and face our broken world knowing that your best efforts will fail, that you will be rejected and hated for your love, and still do it. You can go out and still work for the good of others Show love to the unlovely. Be gracious to the graceless. Because God one day will make all things new and all poverty and all pain will be wiped away. But the things we have done for God and for His glory, they will last forever. The kindness you show to a neighbor, the hope you offer the hopeless, the love you show to those who hate you, these are the things that make us beautiful to God They are the gold that God says is refined with fire and lasts forever.
And I want you to understand, it says that we are like a bride adorned for her husband. There's another place in the New Testament where this language, this word adorned is used. Paul, writing to the church, says that the women in the church should not adorn themselves, not make themselves beautiful with fancy clothes, but with good works. It's the good works they do for God's glory that make them beautiful. That is the image that God gives us of us in the new creation, that we as a church are made beautiful for Christ with the good works we do now. The things we do now in faith, out of hope and in love, to glorify God, those things are what makes us beautiful. Those, that's what the new creation is. It is all of those things being perfected. And those are the things that Christ sees when He looks at us. They're so beautiful, they actually make us a suitable bride for Christ. I mean, I hope you can see there's real hope in that. I mean, there's hope that lasts. There's hope that won't disappoint you. Even though your, your best efforts to make things better aren't going to ultimately succeed, they're, they're making you beautiful, they're glorifying God, and one day God will perfect them. You can trust in that. Now, okay, that all sounds great, right? Guys, everything new, and we should all hope in new creation. Yay. Um, how, how can any of you guys trust that? How, how do you know, how can you have any, any assurance that what I'm saying is right? There's one last aspect of the new creation, and it's the key to the whole thing. In verse 3 we read, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Now, this, I don't know, it may not seem that radical to you, but it is a radical change from the state of the world for the entire history of creation. Never before has God dwelled physically with his people. In the Old Testament, in fact, the dwelling place of God was called the Holy of Holies. And only one person, only once a year, was allowed to enter in there. And if that person, the high priest, hadn't fully repented of and sacrificed for and atoned for his sin, he would be literally struck dead. The fact that God is going to dwell among us is a glorious shift of reality. It's a complete and utter change. We're no longer longing for God's presence. God's presence is with us completely and fully, without avail, undimmed in perfection. But, okay, so, so how does this give us hope? Here's how. Because if God is with us now, and His presence is among us now, even in a small way, then that is proof that He will be with us completely in the future. The Bible describes this as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. That's what God says about the Holy Spirit, that He is a deposit proving that we will inherit God's full presence. Okay, let me, I want you to think about this like a tree. Okay, when you see in a few months from now one apple growing on a tree, you don't think, that's weird, that pine tree has one apple growing on it. Right? That would be a weird thought. If you think that, you might need help. Um, you see an apple on the tree and you think, that's an apple tree. What's going to happen in a few months? More apples are going to grow. You see the first fruit on the tree and it makes you 
realize that more fruit are coming, right? Okay, that make basic sense, everybody? Okay, first fruits is what we have. Paul says that we in the church now experience the first fruits of the resurrection. We see the foreshadow of what's to come. We get the deposit, and it's a guarantee that more will come. I told you earlier that I wanted you to let go of your false hopes and your false beliefs and change that will probably never come. Now is the time I want you to replace them with true hope in what is certain. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about the smallest, most subtle, seemingly insignificant way that God has worked in you, a way that God has changed you. It seems like no big deal. If you can think of anything, I really hope you can, then realize that you aren't a pine tree with one apple freakishly growing off of you. You're an apple tree. You're being changed by God. And the most insignificant things that demonstrate that change now are proof of the ultimate change that is coming. I know the process of being changed by God is really slow and it's frustrating. I know sometimes I feel like it's so slow. I don't think I'm ever going to get there. I'm never going to be what God intended me to be. That's the wrong attitude for both of us. We have to realize instead that taking one step in the right direction, doing one thing for God, doing one righteous thing for God is proof that God is going to take you all of the way. You, you might have heard the verse that says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. That's what this is. The new creation. It's the day of Jesus Christ. You're being made new. And on that day, every good thing that God has started in you will be completed and perfected. And that is why, like Terrence said so beautifully earlier, we see the new creation breaking in now. And we are healed sometimes. And lives are saved. And relationships are restored. And good, miraculous, beautiful things happen to us now. And those are, those are evidence of what's to come. Those are the smallest taste of the glorious purity that God is bringing. Those are the things that should give us hope. Those should remind us of where our ultimate hope is. In a new creation. In a new universe. Where God will be with us and we will be His people. And there will be no more pain. Put your hope in God and praise Him. He is faithful. He is true. You can trust Him. Now, if if you're uncertain where all that leaves you, if you don't know where your ultimate hope is, where it should be, then there's good news for you too. This new creation is promised to everyone who trusts in Christ. Everyone who is a partaker in His righteousness, who is united to Him in faith. If you want ultimate hope, if you want to know, not wish that the future would be better for you, to know that one day all of your brokenness will be washed away and you will be made whole, to know that all of the wrong and hurtful things in the world will be gone and everything that was beautiful and good will be made perfect. If you want that hope, then start by hoping in Christ He is the first fruit of the restoration. He has been made glorious and whole. He has overcome death. And we overcome death only through trusting in Him. Let that be your hope for this new year.
that Christ in His glory is making all things new. Let's pray. Our Father, High King of Heaven, we can not grasp the glory of what You are doing, but You are gracious to us, You are good to us, and You are working in us now. You will one day perfect us. We pray that You would give us hope in this reality, that it would be a firm, unshakable foundation for our lives. We trust in Your Son, the glorious husband to this bride, the church, who has all authority in heaven and earth, and he can do this. Amen.